It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the Right. And good morning, everyone. Happy good spring. Morning. Woohoo! Happy, Happy spring. Happy warm weather. Uh, we get two days of spring, and then we jump right into July, and that's it. And goodbye. Okay. Don't want to <laughs> see you. Uh, yeah, just, all, all the tulips, all the everything else will be whoop. Yeah, well, my tulips are about done anyway, so I I don't care. Oh. I don't have any late-blooming tulips. You so must have really, really early ones. I've only uh, had no, a couple... I, I have mid, I have mid blooming tulips. I don't have the, the, I have one late one in the back. It's just about to pop and it'll last like 10 minutes in 80 degree heat. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it, and, 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 and all you saw on, and, and folks, you should know, uh, and, and, and watch the, that sound you'll be hearing in a second, our dials clicking off all over the country. Um, is, uh, uh, Rick DeMaio is not here with us today. Uh, he's taking the month off and then taking more months off and and then taking more months off and then, uh, yeah, so there we go. I'm playing with the color here. It's just a mess. I cannot get it. I cannot get it right. It doesn't matter. It looks, you look sunburned. Like I I know that's what I think. Okay. Out on your bicycle yesterday. I was, but, uh, there wasn't enough sun. Okay. We can pull that back just a little bit. There we go. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Um, you're doing my Technicolor uh, issue, uh, tweaking here uh, on live streaming. Uh, but yeah, well, here we are. Uh, I was watching the, the weather forecasts on, on the TNV, and they're all going, yay, 80 degrees. And I'm thinking, I don't want five 80-degree days in a row in May, really, uh, or, or close to 90-degree days. Not really. I'd like, can we, can, can we act, like do 70s for a while? Would that be okay? Would that be fine with you? But but by the lake here, yeah, we'll be in the sixties and the seventies. Well, that's just because you live in an urban heat island. Oh well, I I get some of that effect, not as much as you do, because you know you you live in a houseboat on Lake Michigan, and <laughs> uh, and and with oh, all is that where I live? I I'd better go find that houseboat with the then. with I, the seven thousand species it, yeah. of birds that you have there that you get to see every morning, like like the Orioles going to your Oriole feeder. Um, and I put the Oriole feeder up and twice now it has landed in the garden because probably a squirrel jumped on it. And, 
and yeah, and so by the, and by the time I get to it, the oranges are covered in ants, and uh, I don't know if the birds <laughs> like them, but I put it back up in the hope that there will be a, an oriole someday, and I kind of doubt that I'll ever see one. But, so there you go. But so an hour or two, I presume we're going to talk about the interesting bird you do have in your yard. Uh, I do have some interesting birds. And yeah, it's, but yeah, we're going to hold off until hour two on that, right? Yeah, right. Hour two. Keep everybody uh, start... in suspenders. Uh, yeah, I like that. Um, and uh, that's Bob Dolgan um, of uh, Monty and Rose fame. He's going to be on the show because next week is World Migratory Bird Day on the 14th. There's going to be a lot of different counts. It, they call it Big Day if you're uh, part of the Cornell Ornithological Society. Um, we call it International Migratory Bird Day, National Migratory Bird Day, Plain Old Migratory Bird Day. Right. It's a big day on the 14th this year, and a lot of people do bird counts. They do the spring bird counts, uh, and Bob's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about why we haven't seen Rose come back to Montrose Beach. Um, what do you mean, maybe? Maybe he'll talk, he won't talk about it? No, no, no. no maybe. You know, why, why, maybe why we haven't seen Rose come back. Well, I don't know. He might he might know something about it, and he might not. Um, and, oh, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew says, "Why can't we? Can we just get a pic of uh, of of Ricky D? Um, you know, sure. we we could. Okay, just for so there you go, Rick. Just for you, Rick Demeyer. <laughs> That's all we get. Maybe I'll pop that up later on. Okay, Rick Demeyer." Uh, who need an not, updated photo of Rick. Who, who, who needed three weeks to celebrate, you know, whatever he's celebrating in the spring. So, but he is visiting his parents. So there you go. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Bob Dolgan will be here at 10 o'clock to, uh, to talk about more about birds. We uh, Last week, what a great conversation with John Bates from the Field Museum. I hope that helped folks figure out whether they're going to keep their bird feeders up. Um, we mentioned the Oriole feeders that seems to be okay because the birds aren't, con- the, only the Orioles come in and then they punch the other birds away. Right. Is that, is that how that works? Uh, are, are there no other birds in the world that like the fruit that the Orioles get? Um, I have actually seen Downy woodpeckers land on. Well, on good. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you'll occasionally see another bird, but not usually it's more yeah. likely squirrels. Uh, but at any rate, Bob will be here and we'll talk about all things bird and the fact that he's, his, uh, his, uh, film Monty and Rose Two: the world of Monty and Rose is, is, uh, premiering today, the 8th of May on WTTW at 4 PM, uh, public television in Chicago. So if you want to see that for free, 4 PM, Monty and Rose mm-hmm. Two. The world of Monty. We'll, we'll have Rose. to ask him if it's also on the cable window to the world channel that people elsewhere might be able to see. Who knows? Because Channel Eleven's got a couple cable channels that other places in the country you can see it. But before we get to that, uh, I we're going to talk about an issue that, frankly, I was not aware of, um, and it was called to my attention uh, recently. And it is the issue of artificial turf and whether it is safe to have artificial turf uh, outside of our schools and in our parks. 
um, because there's there's so much that goes into it. It's not as simple as wow, this you lay it down, you leave it, um, it'll last forever. You'll never have to mow, um, and everything is going to be right with the world. Um, no, that's not the way it works. Um, and uh, there are apparently around 13,000 artificial turf fields in the country now. That number grows by 12 to 1,300 every year. Um, so maybe we should be talking about this uh, a, a little bit. And uh, so let's talk about that. Let's, let's bring in our group of guests here. And I'm going to put my glasses on because I can't read anything uh, that small with without them. Uh, on the right of your screen is you, Shabakar Koppel, uh, and um, she is a resident of Lake Forest, Illinois, and she also started a group called Green Minds uh, LFLB, which stands for Lake Forest, Lake Bluff. Um, you're also part of another group that is fighting the, uh, the issue of um, the uh, artificial turf, and that is Go Real, Go Grass. So both of those you can find on Facebook. If you go to my Facebook post uh, from today, you will see the links to both of those organizations. Uh, in your lower left is Mary Galay, who is a Lake Forest resident who has been involved in this issue. She's also a biologist, or has studied biology, got her degree in biology from Kent State. Um, on the right, Ryan Anderson, who's a, a friend of the show from Midwest Grows Green. Uh, he has been with us a number of times. Not only are we going to talk about artificial turf with Ryan Anderson, but we're also going to talk about a new certification program where municipalities and groups who want to do parks and green areas can do it by putting in lawns that don't use chemicals, that uh, do it naturally, do it safely. And uh, Ryan's going to talk about that too. But I want to start with you, you. <laughs> and and I, I'm sorry that I laugh when I say that. But, you know, you must have gotten, you must have grown up, you know, or as long as you've been in the United States, you get jokes like that all the time, I imagine you. I do. I went to boarding school in England, and that was the biggest joke at school there. Okay, well. <laughs> so you'll forgive me if if I giggle from time to time about that. But but actually, you're an activist. You've been involved in a lot of different things that are are are, are quite interesting. Um, how is it that the idea of artificial turf uh, came to your attention? So from the very beginning, I've been skeptical of synthetic turf. We've always known that you're supposed to wash the clothes of the kids. They're supposed to take the shoes off when they come inside from practice. Um, my big concern when we heard about this big complex was the athlete safety because I have a son who was injured on synthetic turf in eighth grade and he was out of sports for almost an entire year. And I don't want to see anybody, any other athletes or children go through that kind of pain and that kind of unnecessary um, kind of accidents. And so, and then I started studying more about it when I heard that they were going to put that in here. And the more I learned, the more mortified I got. And my environmental stomach just turned and said, no, we can't do that. It just doesn't make sense. All right. And, and we should get to the, the particulars of this. This is going to be in Lake Forest. There's uh, Deer Path Park 
is uh, an area where the uh, the um, park district of uh, Lake Forest wants to put in 10.5 acres. We're not talking about one field here. We're talking about mm-hmm. how many diff- how many fields would 10.5 acres? That is equivalent to seven and a half football fields. Wow. All right, that's a lot of artificial tur- turf, um, and it did go to um, a vote. Uh, and um, do you has there? Uh, we've we've been down this path before, Peggy and I, on this show uh, with various issues, environmental issues in various municipalities: Chicago, Skokie, Schaumburg, Schaumburg. Yeah, where uh, where these things happen, and folks feel like they have not had a say in it. Do you feel like you've had a say in what is happening to this field? So in Gorico Grass, we all feel we didn't have a say, um, and also in Green Mines. They, the Parks and Recs, they do say that they have had input from us, but they started off, we only learned about it in the fall, and they're basing, basing it off a master plan that they created um, last year, uh, in 2020, with input from four members from four private clubs and one vocal resident very much wanting synthetic turf. Um, so... And we're hearing that resident has ties to the synthetic turf industry, so we we don't feel that that's a very very representative um, group of people to bring into a focus group to ask what you want, what the community wants. Um, private clubs, some of them not even in Lake Forest, shouldn't be determining what is best for our community. Okay, as it stands right now, has the uh, 10.5 acres been formally approved or are there more steps to take? So there's a few more steps. The, the design phase of the 10.5 acres synthetic turf fields have been approved. So they're spending over $400,000 on designing a synthetic turf project. And then, wait, 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 wait. They're, they're spending $400,000 on what? On just making the design. Oh, okay. For just the design, and then afterward, and and I've seen some of the the uh, the charts you've sent me, um, and from what I understand, you're saying uh, that the final cost will be in the neighborhood of what six to seven million dollars. Is that correct? So the final cost of the entire athletic um, complex is going. They they've estimated eleven point eight million dollars. Oh. That and but some of it probably would have been we would pay for that anyway because they will we, we, they should they need to drain and grade this these fields and put proper drainers in for these fields anyway whether they do natural grass or synthetic turf so the final cost is probably for just synthetic turf the extra cost is 67 million dollars but they're planning to to take out a general municipal bond of um 12 million dollars so that's going to burden our taxpayers tremendously all right, let's go to uh, Mary, uh, uh, because uh, you know a little bit about biology. Uh, first, let me ask you, uh, how did you get involved in this issue? Well, I heard about this issue shortly after we moved to Lake Forest. Um, we moved here for all of its wonderful green space and um, what seemed like vibrant um, ethic of land stewardship. And I heard about it and went, oh, my gosh, this 10-acre synthetic turf complex is going to go 
uh, right around the behind and next to the middle school where my daughter will attend at some point. All right. And, and what in terms of biology, <laughs> because you have that background, um, gives you pause about the idea of artificial turf? Sure, that's right. So I do have a degree in biology. I also have a master's degree in natural resource management and have worked with um, the federal government, uh, private industry, and nonprofits. And what really gives me pause, first and foremost, as a mom, that um, as a young child at a developmentally, developmentally critical period in her life, my daughter will, and the other children at the middle school, um, will be exposed to microplastics, endocrine, thyroid, and hormone disruptors, um, again, at this very critical um, developmental period of middle school. And that really gave me pause. But secondly, you know, as um, a citizen, uh, it seems as if we're swimming in plastic and the world seems to be moving away from plastic and off fossil fuels. Um, And for good reason, you know, 80% of humans now have fossil, um, have microplastics in their blood. And it's just been found that we have microplastics even in our lungs. Um, So when you think about the biology of that, that um, definitely gave me pause. All right. Well, let's let's look at the issue of and and I think we might bring Ryan into this as well, because uh, as you pointed out, uh, they were planning they had to do drainage anyway, um, Mm -hmm. the field. In fact, let me start there. Why couldn't you put a natural turf, if you're going to do the drainage anyway, wouldn't that, and that seems to be one of the issues that the, the field uh, aren't playable during, and I bet in this spring, it's been pretty awful uh, in that area. We've had a lot of rain recently, although we yep. were dry, dry earlier. Um, but um, why couldn't a natural turf do just as well, Ryan? Um, it, it can do uh, pretty well. I mean, obviously after you need probably a day or so to let the uh, turf dry out. But if you apply compost top dressing, that's a great way to um, reduce uh, or improve the drainage of your athletic fields. And that's what we've been really promoting with a couple of our uh, park districts here that Midwest Grows Green is working with. So you already have examples of, of how that can work. Correct. Yeah. And we have some, we have a number of park districts. Um, I think Wilmette Park District is a pretty good example. Uh, Christy Solberg has worked out there and she's done, added a lot of organic fertilizers, um, try to do some compost and she's been able to keep her play, her fields in play even after uh, heavy rain events. All right. Getting back to, uh, the field and what they're trying to accomplish. One of the, the arguments for it is that, well, we already have natural turf in the area. We want to give people a choice. They can decide to play on this turf or they can decide to play on the natural turf. And you, you're, you're smiling when I say that. Why? Yeah. So they're talking about giving people a choice, but with this, they're not going to give any of the families at Deer Park Middle School a choice because outdoor PE is going to be at these fields. And children with asthma or eczema or other health issues, they might not be able to play in these fields. And Mm -hmm. then they won't be able to participate in outdoor PE. And that's not giving everybody a choice. All right. I want. So go ahead, Peggy. 
I was, and and we're probably going to be getting to this, but for listeners that might not be familiar with why the artificial turf is a potential health problem, you know, you're saying for uh, anything from um, endocrine disruptors to asthma and everything else. So the synthetic turf turf field is made out of 40,000 pounds of just one average synthetic turf field of 40,000 pounds of plastic carpet. This plastic carpet, all of them, there's not one brand that does not contain PFAS. PFAS are very um, controversial at the moment, and everybody it's on everybody's radar. They're banning it in EU. EPA yeah. is coming up with new thresholds. Yeah. P- PFAS. PFAS, and, yeah. And then they also have 400,000 pounds of um, infill, most of this, the traditional infill is rubber-based that we all know, and we all know from our old um, crum tires, and we all know that it contains PATH, lead, mercury, all sorts of other nasty chemicals that we don't want our kids near. And they have some natural alternatives now, but they mix these natural alternatives with silica sand that's treated and also contains PATH and lead, and that dust the kids will inhale. Um, there's issues of heat exhaustion because these um, plastic fields, they they, con- they contain the heat so the, the heat doesn't cool down. Actually, they will create the whole area will get hotter in mm-hmm. around a synthetic turf. So the kids, they will get, get turf burns. And we all know, have seen turf burns and that, that's why it's called turf burns. They, when they rub against these hot surfaces, they'll get turbulence, and they will sometimes, when it gets really hot, over 86 Fahrenheit ambient temperature is going to create the field to like 130 Fahrenheit, and they're going to start having burns on them from touching it with their skin. Uh, by the way, uh, we, we talked about PFAS, PFAS, as uh, Peggy noted. They're uh, polyfluoroalkyl substances. Um, Mary, do you know? Uh, anything about these substances and about the harm they might do? Um, sure, I do know a little bit. Um, most people are familiar with, uh, you know, Teflon products. That's where they really started to enter our um, our kind of general environment. Um, they never break down. So the reason why they're called forever chemicals is because once they're out in the environment, either in our water or even in our blood, Um, They're never going to go away. So that is definitely a danger. Another, you know, the other component is the microplastic component. Mm -hmm. Um, These synthetic turf fields only last seven to 10 years before they're ripped up and completely replaced. So this truly creates an endless cycle of plastic and fossil fuel dependency uh, for the communities that choose to install these fields. Right. You know what I want to do is uh, show... I went off to a, a field in my neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. yesterday. It was a nice day. It was a sunny day. Thought you that know that would be Logan Square in the city. That would be Logan Square. Here's what we're we're talking about. Here's a a typical uh, synthetic field, and you you can see the kids playing on it, and it it looks really nice. I th- I think one of the reasons folks like them is because they're neat. We, uh, uh, as a society, um, um, as a culture, have value neatness probably as much as anything in the whole world. Uh, but what I did is um, 
decided to take a, a look, a close look, and and here's what we're talking about. This is called rubber the, rubber crumb. This is infill rubber crumb, and um, the, as you can see in the the artificial turf beyond my hand, uh, it's it's completely covers it as you pointed out. Um, the uh, the turf itself uh, contains about forty thousand for for an average field for an average field. The turf itself contains about forty thousand pounds of plastic carpeting, but another four hundred thousand pounds of infill, and it's often this rubber crumb. And that's uh, to keep the artificial blades standing, right? Well, it, it does uh, a, a number of things, um, uh, one of which, it yes, that's one of the things, to keep uh, the, the blades upright. But from what I understand, uh, you and Mary, it uh, also softens the, uh, the uh, <laughs> you know, kids falling down and, and adults falling down on, on this. It, it, it softens the blow because those are very hard surfaces, aren't they? They're extremely hard surfaces, and that is a danger for the athletes. Um, there's different levels. It's called Remax of hardness of an athletic field. A professional team, they are maximum allowed to have play. They are not allowed to play on any fields with a higher Remax than 100. Often these fields, especially for the schools and how they're designed and park districts, they have way over 100 Remax levels. Sometimes we see them higher than 200, which is actually not supposed. They're not supposed to play on them, but that does happen. They can. They do sometimes when they use natural infills, they put a shock pad underneath instead because the natural infills are harder. You know, if they're talking about olive pits for Lake Forest, a combination of olive, olive pits and silica sand. And these olive pits are very, very hard. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to bite through an olive and, and hit the, the pit. I would think sharp. I would think that would be sharp too. So they grind them up and treat them, these olive pits, and then they they mix it with the silica sands and use it as infill, and that's very hard. So they need to put a shock pack, more plastic underneath, which is often out of a styrene, also containing PFAS and all sorts of plastics we don't want to have in our community. And in our, we're trying to get rid of plastic. You know, the, everybody talks about reducing plastic straws and plastic bags, but that's nothing compared to what the amounts that they're putting in here. All right, and the other thing we haven't even mentioned is what happens at end of life now and uh, uh one of the arguments for using artificial turf is that it's going to cost less because it's it's you don't have to replace it you don't have to keep up with the maintenance but as you pointed out the the lifespan is usually average lifespan is under 10 years um mm -hmm. which means that you're starting all over again and this is a very huge expense to put this in and in a matter of probably seven eight nine, 10 years, you're replacing it. But the other thing is what happens to this? In the case of Lake Forest, that's 10 acres being replaced. Yeah. And where is that going? Well, as it turns out, pretty much nowhere. Um, um, I, you got to go to my blog, go to Mike and, um, you, uh, you should, you should read, some of these uh, stories that are out there. There was one in mm -hmm. the Atlantic that I linked to called the dangerous pileup of artificial turf and how we haven't figured out where it can go. 
Um, it's it, it ends up often in landfills and sometimes worse, um, not just landfills, but sometimes they just dump it on the sides of hills and into valleys and, and just because... Next to waterways? Next to waterways where all of this fill and the plastics will leach into our, our waterways. Uh, you know, you could, you could look at this issue and say maybe the, the main point, the main problem we have is that we don't know what to do with this stuff at the end of life. Um, there's no thought about where it goes afterward. Um, and that alone, yeah, some people, uh, they cut it up and they'll say, give it to people they can use for their yards. Well, what happens then after they use it from their yards? They're still the end of life. It's still going to be there someplace. And, uh, and, and I would add, and what's happening in the breakdown then you take something that's end of life, you're reusing it. It's all over everyone's feet. It's running off. It's outgassing. It's, yeah, you, you're now, shaking your head. <laughs> yes, um, it's it's just terrible, and they have they're t- saying that they want to recycle it. They're planning to recycle it at some stage. They've been saying that for ten years. It still hasn't happened. But I spoke to the general manager of one of these recycling facilities in Europe, and he told me that they recycle when they recycle it, either they incinerate it. I don't see that as recycling, and or they. They repurpose it into landscaping materials and building materials. That is, so they're spreading out all these chemicals even further, and they can't get rid of the chemicals. And we know that these PFAS that's in the synthetic fields mm-hmm. is the same PFAS that the firefighters are fighting right now. That's why we see a lot of firefighter families opposing synthetic turf. And uh, in this uh, story, uh, um, Diana Conway, president of the not-for-profit Safe Healthy Playing Field, says. Crumb rubber is notorious for migrating uh, with the tiny tire pellets sticking to. And by the way, you got to remember, these are, these are ground up tires. This is what we in the 90s when we started doing these athletic fields. Uh, some folks thought this is it that we figured out how to recycle our tires. But no, we just pushed it down the road. We put them, the, the tire crumb into these fields. And then at the end of that life, we still don't know what to do with the tire crumb. Um, and, and these, uh, by the way, these, these carpets in these, in, in landfills and wherever else they dump them, if they catch fire, they burn for a long time. It's really hard to control that stuff. Uh, at any rate, back to this, uh, it's, they're notorious for migrating with the pellets sticking to player skin and socks and spreading into nearby environment. Uh, while that alleged risk has received widespread media attention, most people give little thought to the sheer weight and volume of refuse involved in disposal of used playing fields, um, and says Conway, who's a retired attorney, attorney from Montgomery County, Maryland. So all of this adds up. Um, so when we come back, we need to take a, a, a short break. Uh, there, there are other issues that we've just barely touched on, um, uh, among them the, uh, the heat island effect of this. Mm-hmm. But one thing we have not touched on really at all is the effect on athletes of playing on these surfaces, mm-hmm. the in, the injuries that occur because of the hardness of these surfaces. Uh, when we come back, you, I want you to bring your son, Yoakum in because he's a student athlete uh, so we can talk about this uh, a, a little bit. 
Um, and uh, and we'll get then to Ryan because the alternative, obviously, is to grow natural turf. But if you're going to grow natural turf, and we talk about it all the time on this show, please do it wisely, which means don't go slathering it with pesticides and too much fertilizer. Do it right. Do it naturally. And we're going to talk to Ryan about a certification program uh, that's going to encourage municipalities to do it right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. More when we return. This is Vic from Happy Leaf. Today we're going to talk about how grow lights work. Plants need three things. They need water, they need nutrients, and they need light. The sun provides wonderful light for growing plants outdoors, but indoors you need a grow light. So how do grow lights work? We know what kinds of colors plants like, so various types of grow lights are made for different types of plants. Recently, LED grow lights have made a dramatic improvement in the types of grow lights we can make. The red light allows us to make the plant grow vertical and to flower, and the blue light makes the plant bushy and strong. Happy Leaf LED grow lights have the precise red and blue to make plants grow very well. We know that plants look happy if they're green to us, but remember, that they reflect green light as opposed to using it. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking to you, Shabakar Koppel uh, and Mary Galay uh, from Lake Forest, where they are um, trying to stop an artificial turf being put on 10.5 acres um, in uh, Deer Path Park. Uh, Ryan Anderson from Midwest Gross Green is here with us. Uh, we mentioned uh, just before the break that one of the problems with artificial turf is how hard the surfaces are, literally. 
Um, there's uh, an article that I linked to in my blog post about how NFL stars, National Football League stars, have started a petition to ban artificial turf in football after Odell Beckham's Super Bowl injury. Uh, and that was on uh, artificial turf. And, and that is, uh, there are soccer leagues um, in the world who have started to move away from this. Uh, the, the National Football League has been uh, urging teams to use uh, natural turf, uh, uh, natural grass, uh, because it just seems so much safer uh, for the athletes. Uh, we have a student athlete here now, Joachim uh, Schabacher. Uh, Joachim, uh, welcome. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so, welcome. What uh, what kind of sports do you play? So I play uh, soccer and basketball. So obviously soccer would be addressing the um, synthetic turf issue. Yeah. All right. And uh, what kind of issues have you seen uh, with athletes? Have you, have you known athletes, uh, your fellow athletes who have been injured on uh, on the hard surfaces? Yeah, definitely. So um, this season we initially started playing on natural grass due to the fact we couldn't actually play on synthetic turf since it was too hot. Um, we had a pretty hot ball, so uh, the trainers wouldn't allow us to play on synthetic turf. So we were all on natural grass. Then as soon as we shifted over to synthetic turf, we started seeing an immediate increase in shin splints and stress and on the knees and ankles because um, it's really hard. So when you're playing two, three hours at a consistent high-level pace, um, the stress really impacts your body. And then also seeing one of my teammates over the season – he got his stuck, just like you mentioned Odell Beckham Jr. in the Super Bowl. He got his stuck in the turf and actually tore his meniscus and he was out for the rest of the season. Just wow. one of those fortunate events that you hear of consistently with athletes on turf. Uh, have you encountered any uh, heat island effects on the turf? Right. Well, like I mentioned before, we, we were actually not allowed to play on turf when it was really hot. Um, you can, so when we were driving past, our turf fields are right next to the grass fields. So we drive past, you can see like almost like the heat radiating off the turf. And, and we had to, when we plant turf, and when it's really hot, we have to have regular pauses on when it's really hot. Go ahead, Peggy. So one of the reasons that um, when I was you know reading through your, your Green Minds website and other sites too is in favor is claiming that when natural grass is wet, you can't play. So they're losing more playing time. But, you know, if, if it's too hot, you guys aren't playing. If there's other conditions, you're not playing. I mean, is that real or is um, that just, it sounds like it, it, it kind of balances out. I mean, you, yeah. yeah, if you can't play, if it's wet, but if it's so hot that you're going to be injuring athletes, you can't play then yeah. either. And you could do that on natural turf. Right. So typically, um, we're seeing like an influx of adverse weather patterns of um, consistent heat and flooding. The fields actually flood really quick, a lot, um, really easily. So we actually can't play off that turf. Also, when it rains a lot, because the fields just flood. Um, and yeah, so and then with natural grass, it also floods. But typically, when um, high, when it starts flooding, we can't play on natural grass. We actually go inside um, and watch film or practice on our ball handling or cardio. So we're still getting the um, exercise and performance and getting better every day. Well, what about that, the the, the issue of flooding? That seems to be... Yeah, the... I was going to ask Ryan if he could comment on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's different fields with natural grass um, where you can have drainage tiles and stuff like that. But most of our fields, I would say, in, in park districts do not have the appropriate drainage or anything like that. But you can definitely have um, – we have a whole field construction that talks about different strategies to improve drainage so that you can keep your fields in play uh, for longer. But, um, and that's a lot cheaper. These options are a lot cheaper than just installing an artificial turf field. Um, and all of this gets us back to the financial issue. Where do we stand on the finances for this? Um, I, I imagine that the proponents of artificial turf would tell you that it's going to be cheaper in, in the long run. Um, what I read and the research I did, which is in my blog post, if you want to go take a look at it, tells me that at best, no pun intended, it's a wash, that you can do the same thing uh, probably in terms of uh, uh, cost uh, with e- either way, but then, of course, you won't have the uh, the chemical issues with uh, the natural turf that you do with the artificial turf. Um w- Ryan, you sent me some information that indicated that the uh, the cost is really not a factor here. Yeah, so at the very low end, um, a fee- artificial turf field will cost about eighty thousand dollars, and then um, you have to consider the cost of um, maintenance. So you still need to maintain that turf if you're being appropriate because. Uh, it could have MRSA, so you need to use some biocides to kill out any pathogens uh, for humans. So that's about 5000 per year. Um, and then um, you also add, you have to add some infill because the infill, um, as you said, you can take it home on your cleats and stuff like that. So you need to replace that. It migrates, finally, as they say. It migrates. Yeah, and it probably <laughs> washes out in a flood, too, I would imagine. Yeah. So um, there's costs associated with that replacement of the infill. And then finally, um, after 10 years, you need to replace it. So um, then you add another 80,000, and that's at the extremely low end. Um, A natural grass field is a lot less expensive because all you need to do is apply that grass seed, which is not that much. It's like a couple thousand. Um, And then you have a a couple thousand that goes with... uh, um, The fertilizer treatment, what we want is organic fertilizers and compost top dressing is the other other cost with natural grass fields. So it does even out, and most of the time when we see it, a a natural grass field will be cheaper. Uh, I want to get back to the biology and the MRSA thing because that is a whole different area. But uh, what this highlights here is this thought, this mentality, and we've talked about it on this show before, um, even even with gardens and, and people's own backyards. They often say, I want a low-maintenance garden. And what they really mean is they want a no-maintenance garden. They don't want to be bothered. And so folks get this idea in their head. They say, oh, look, artificial turf. We put that down. We're done. We'll never, ever ever have to deal with that again. And obviously, as we're saying, that's not true because the fill is going to wash out. It's going to migrate. Um, you're going to, uh, the, the turf can get ripped up at, at certain points. Um, there are uh, uh, articles I read about gophers coming up through the middle of the field. So my, maybe you have to put a metal grid 
underneath that just to pretend thing, uh, prevent things like that happen. There's no such thing as a free lunch is what I'm trying to tell people. There's no such thing as uh, a, a surface you put down outside and you never have to deal with again. Even if you put this in your own backyard, and, and one of the issues is it was interesting. There was an article in the New York Times um, where uh, uh, they they don't recommend at all. Oh, yeah, the, the Wire Cutters article. The Wire Cutters yeah. did an article. They don't even recommend it for home use. Even if it's a tiny little area, they say, you know what? You look at that. It's not going to work. It's just not going to work. The interesting thing is they went in with the proposal. uh, Their hypothesis was, yeah, we're going to be recommending synthetic turf. And the more they learned about it, they like ran the other way. It's an amazing story. If you, if you go to the blog post, uh, look for the link that says the experts don't even suggest you get artificial turf for your own backyard. And I've got a link there. And, 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 and as Peggy said, they went in with a mindset, we're just going to pick the best company and then recommend it to people. And they came away from it saying, we don't recommend artificial turf at all, at all for, for the home use. Um, and now you, you might say, well, we're going to have professionals install this uh, for a large field like a, a deer path in Lake Forest. Still, that's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the expense comes, uh, doing it right, because you have to grade it. Yeah. You have to put things down smoothly, and then you have to do it right. So that said, no free lunch. MRSA. Um, um, uh, Mary, can I throw this in your court a little bit? Not specifically about MRSA, because I know you're probably not an expert on that, but the idea of biological agents being on the surface of these fields. Sure. So from what I understand, because the fields are made up of plastic, um, it create, you know, it creates a really good environment for bacteria, um, to grow and other, um, you know, infectious um, microbes out there to grow. And because they get, you know, so hot, um, you know, and they just don't wash away and wash clean like natural surfaces do. Um, So then you do have to apply antimicrobials, which in essence are pesticides um, to make sure that the athletes, when they do rub up against the fields and get those, you know, um, turf burns that they then don't also get an infection afterwards. So this is part of that not so maintenance free um, component of this that, you know, with natural grass, yes, you do have to do some maintenance, but you certainly don't have to um, apply antimicrobials to it um, because the uh, microbes are able to break down much more easily on the natural surface than they are the um, synthetic surface. So this is definitely, um, you know, a health and safety maintenance component that has mm-hmm. to be done with synthetic turf fields. Okay. I want to get to, uh, oh. oh, okay, Peggy, go ahead. And then we'll, we'll wrap this up so we can get to Ryan. Uh, yeah. So and, I, I, I was going to say part of, so part of what you're doing with um, green mines, like forest, Lake bluff and the, um, your go real go grass group is a change.org petition. Oh, right. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to ask if you could talk about that a little bit, please. So we've tried to put some pressure on the city to try and at least consider natural grass. Um, They haven't been very willing so far, but we do have a change position because we think it's important that they see that there is a voice of residents who doesn't want this. And there's really different residents who doesn't want it for different reasons. There's residents who's against it for the tax 
but the fiscal impact on <laughs> on the taxpayers there is residents who are against it for the safety of their children there's residents that's against it because it was a community park now we're going to get the synthetic turf which often entails gated um areas where you can't bring dogs you can't bring food you can't do all these other things um and then and then on and on and so our change petition has over 900 signatures we are getting close to a thousand and we have had more people call into the city and email the city against this and still they voted against the, what the residents asked the majority of the residents asked so we're still hoping that we can put some pressure that they at least try and look at some at reducing the footprint of this um of this complex and maybe reduce the size because it's just so stomach training to think of that they're willing to put the this is going to be the second largest in our entire area fields and it's right in a floodplain on Skokie, next to Skokie river so an area yeah. that floods all the time it's not like the largest one is in Schaumburg that's next to a highway and Schaumburg caters to 80,000 residents we cater to 20,000 residents and then we just don't give the children a choice yeah, right next to yeah. and as you I was gonna say and as you point out a lot of the neighboring communities have big athletic fields that aren't artificial right so up in Waukegan they actually have um, a really nice all-natural grass fields couple complexes where actually pro teams and semi-pro teams take these fields and like reserve them um, because they're super nice and there's a reason why they prefer this there's a synthetic turf a really actually really nice synthetic turf right next to it but they rather play on these um all natural grass because it's just playability is nicer it's a whole different game playing on synthetic turf and like you said um like we mentioned before injuries are a lot less common in pre-game all right. Well, um, I wish you luck. Uh, Peggy and I, as as we mentioned earlier, have seen this play out before. And um, the group of concerned citizens gets involved. The The community expresses its wishes. Uh, and then um, the powers that be uh, ignore them um, and go ahead with their plans anyway. Um, now, I don't know how many in your community, you know, from what I understand, it's there's people on both sides of this issue who think that um, a, net, a, a synthetic turf would just be delightful. Uh, but I don't think they understand the issue as clearly as they could. And I, and I hope that some of those people were listening to this show today. So I'm just going to say good luck in uh, putting this together because I want to get to uh, Ryan now because uh, Ryan obviously is <laughs> – is in favor of natural turf, but doing natural turf the right way. And uh, you're about to have a couple of seminars this week um, where you're going to promote the Green Shield certified GSC for landscapes uh, certification. Now, tell us a, a little bit about that, Ryan. Yeah, so um, we've talked to a lot of people and um, people get confused with these terms of organic, natural, sustainable landscaping. Um, so we actually wanted to find that uh, what it means to uh, provide a sustainable landscaping service or provide an organic landscaping service or to actually manage uh, space without synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. So that's what Green Shield Certified for Landscapes does, or GSC for short. Um it's, it, it's a guide and evaluation of about 40 minimum requirements 
and then about 105 uh, scored practices um, in total. And uh, these companies or these municipalities that we're evaluating, we have to do an on-site evaluation every three years. They need to pass all those minimum requirements, and then they need to score 80% or above on these scored practices um, to achieve the Green Shield certification. And they need to do that every three years. Uh, so they need to continue to uh, maintain their uh, landscape sustainably. And so uh, we have that credible uh, recertification every three years. It's a very rigorous uh, system. And then if they achieve these standards, um, consumers, residents, they can, they, can, uh, they can feel better that they know that this landscape is being managed without synthetic chemicals or with very limited synthetic chemicals. Uh, chemicals um, based on our standards. So basically, it's it's a chance for a municipality to say, "Hey, look at us! Uh, your kids can feel safe on there. You can feel that your kids are safe uh, on our, our our parks and and on our lawns." Correct. Yeah, um, and it's it's evaluated by a third party person, the IPM Institute. Um, so I'm one of the evaluators, and we're probably we're working on coming up with a couple other. Mm-hmm. Um, expert evaluators uh, for um, whatever whatever type of landscape you want. We, we can do turf grass. That's my expertise, but we're also uh, looking for natural areas too. So limited uh, use of glyphosate um, and only using it uh, when it's absolutely necessary. And then obviously um, there's components of uh, proper native plants, plantings, and um, re- reducing erosion, uh, reducing uh, runoff into our waterways. Uh, and now I uh, was not familiar with Green Shield certified, but that's part of the IPM Institute of North America, right? Just as um, uh, Midwest Grows Green is part of the IPM Institute of North America. Yeah, correct. Um, so Green Shield certified has been around for 20 years now. Um, really? Okay. And it started, yeah. So it started um, as a certification system for um, indoor pest control. So we have about 30 companies um, and about two uh, large headquarters, like Morgan Stanley, I believe, um, that have been uh, evaluated by Green Shield certified and our Green Shield certified companies. And um, uh, any cons- residents or consumers uh, know that these uh, companies are applying our integrated pest management approach and only applying pesticides if absolutely necessary using all these um low toxic practices like exclusion, um, sanitation, and everything like that for indoors. So we're just applying this concept of Green Shield certified for indoors to Green Shield certified for uh, landscapes. All right. And you have a couple of webinars next week. Um, let's pop up uh, this one because this is uh, the, the first webinar. Uh, Mackenzie Feldman, what's, uh, this is on Tuesday, correct? Tuesday, May 10th. Yeah, so on Tuesday, we're going to have three speakers. One is going to be myself, and I'm going to talk about um, how you can get your sustainable landscaping project up and running. So, yes, that has aspects of funding, but also partnerships with nonprofits um, like Midwest Grows Green. But we have uh, two other representatives uh, that do sustainable landscaping initiatives. Mackenzie is one uh, from Herbicide Free Campus. Um, they're, they're relatively new, but they've been working with a lot of, uh, universities to eliminate their herbicide use, um, a lot in California, but I know they have one in Iowa 
and they're they're spreading across the country. And then uh, Jim Kleinwalker from the Conservation Foundation and his Conservation at Home program. Uh, so he's going to talk about how you can partner with the Conservation Foundation for uh, native planting uh, projects and natural areas. And uh, and then on th- well, we have a photo of you. There you are. Um, yeah. a- as well. Uh, and then there's another, uh, presentation on Thursday. Yeah. And so that, this one is more formally introducing, uh, the GSC for landscapes. So there are three components, uh, to GSC for landscapes or three things that you can get evaluated on design, installation, and maintenance. Um, and so I'm going to cover each of those components. And if you are a lawn care company that only does maintenance, you can just pursue the maintenance part. But if you are a landscape architect that only does design and installation, you can uh, you can choose to only uh, pursue that design and installation uh, components and you don't need to go through the maintenance. So uh, that's a cool thing about GSC for landscapes is we are hitting, you know, anybody that is in the landscaping sector from a landscape designer to landscape manager all the way to the landscape company and as, as well as the municipalities, park districts and schools. Yeah, that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's very cool that you're, you're reaching out to uh, all aspects of it. So get everybody on board, uh, not just the municipalities, because if they're going to yeah. want to do this, they got to be able to find the landscapers who can do this right and be certified. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and that, and I, I popped the, the link to Midwest grows green week up in the chat here. Yeah. Um, so, the point of all of this, as we wrap up here, is is showing that, yeah, you can do large areas uh, uh, and do them naturally and and do them well and do them without um, unnecessary chemicals, pesticides, uh, synthetic uh, fertilizers. If if you know what you're doing, uh, one of the things I wanted to to pop up here because uh, you went out this morning, you and took some photos just so folks get an idea of what we're talking about in Lake Forest. I'm sorry I didn't uh, show this earlier, but here's a a uh, panoramic view. This field, which now this is all natural turf at the moment, this is the field that they want to turn into um, the uh, the synthetic field. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it Again, this is up in Lake Forest. Uh, Park. The, it, it looks pretty nice to me. I mean, I, I know it obviously right now it's flooding, but uh, from time to time um, and uh, might have other issues. But uh, like I said, nothing is perfect and you have to uh, you have to work at any field to get it uh, the way you absolutely want it. Um, and in this case, it seems to me that the safer route is to go with the natural route to go to the natural route. Um, and, uh, all the information we have actually a link to your petition online on my blog post. And, and again, if you have any interest in this subject, I would tell folks read up on it. It is, um, I, it's pretty much new to me. I did not know about this. And so I want to thank you guys for introducing me to this issue. So now I have something else I, I can lie awake nights thinking about. <laughs> and worry about. And worry about, really. Um, uh, anything you want to say as we wrap up, you and Mary? Mary, do you want to go I ahead? would just like to say, sure. Um, I truly feel like there has to be a solution um, 
besides 10 and a half acres of synthetic turf that meets the needs of these athletes, the middle school kids and the broader community. Um, I think one great place to start would be to shrink the footprint. You know, maybe it is a mix of synthetic turf and natural grass, but certainly working with experts like Ryan to find these long-term resilient solutions um, seems to be in the best interest of everybody, especially our children. So that sounds like a, a compromise position to me, Mary. Yeah. I mean, you know, 10 and a half acres of plastic is just such a large volume that, you know, creates this, you know, massive demand for fossil fuels and, and plastics um, to do that in perpetuity just seems counter to everything that the rest of our actions, um, you know, as a nation and as a world, you know, we're trying to move away from. So, you know, there has to be a better way moving forward. And there are experts to help us get there. Yeah. And let's keep in mind, we don't know what we're going to do with it when we're finished with it. Uh, At the end of its life, 10 and a half acres of plastic, 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 and, and rubber crumb um, is going to get rolled up and dumped somewhere. Uh, and, and out of sight, out of mind. That's, that's the way the world works. Uh, uh, you, Shabakar, Koppel, uh, Mary, uh, Galay, uh, Ryan Anderson, thank you all for being with us on the program. Very important stuff, and, and glad you could spend a Sunday morning with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank uh, you. When we come back, we're talking birds with Bob Dolgan, so we hope you stick around. Hey, good morning, Dr. Borden. How are you doing today? Hey, Victor, I'm doing great. What can I do for you? Up on the upper branches of this juniper tree, there's something that looks really bizarre that caught my eye. And I thought I'd give you a call to see if you could tell us a little bit more about it and whether or not we should be concerned. I bet I can help. Is it by any chance a a brown, lumpy structure about the size of a golf ball? It is, and it has these really bizarre porcupine quills sticking out of it. Oh, yeah. Great find, Victor. So this is a disease called cedar apple rust. And in one of my previous jobs, uh, I spent some time working on this at the Virginia Tech Research Station in Winchester. So I'd be happy to tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, Good news is that it's not really harmful to your eastern red cedar there. You might see that twig that the gall is on turn a little bit yellow, but it's no big deal. You can just prune it out. But Victor, are are there by any chance any apples or crabapple trees nearby? There are. I believe there's a crab apple up the hill, and I do know it to be true that there are some fruit-producing apple trees in the backyards of this neighborhood. That makes a lot of sense. So this is a very interesting fungus. It bounces back and forth between usually the eastern red cedars and apples and crab apples, and it requires both groups of plants to complete its life cycle. So if you go and scout your crab apples and apples nearby, you might see little yellow spots on the leaves, and that's the exact same fungus. So what's happening is that those galls on your eastern red cedar are gonna release really small spores that blow on the wind. And when they land on young, tender apple and crab apple leaves, they'll form these little yellow spots. And then later in the season, 
those yellow lesions are going to produce spores that travel back to the eastern red cedars and the cycle starts all over again. So it can be a very important disease on the apples and crab apples. So if you're a homeowner that wants to prioritize your apple trees, would it be a good option to remove the cedar tree? You know, that's a great thought. In fact, historically, that's exactly what they did, especially in the early 1900s. They would go and, and try to remove all eastern red cedars within a several mile radius of, of commercial apple orchards. We don't need to do that today, thankfully. And there's a couple of good reasons. First, we have some very effective fungicides that if you apply them at the right time in the season, do a great job at preventing infection on apples and crab apples. Also, we don't want to be removing eastern red cedars if possible, because they are great habitat and food for a lot of our native birds. And then the third thing you can do is plant resistant varieties. So these trees behind me, these are golden delicious apples. It's a great apple, but it's very susceptible to this disease. But there are a lot of varieties now that are resistant to it, and that's a great management tool. So if you're a homeowner that wants fruit bearing apple trees, choosing the right variety sounds like it might go a long way in managing this disease. Absolutely right, Victor. It's well worth your time to do that research up front. Fascinating. Well, Matt, once again, I want to thank you for your time. And as always, thank you for being a resource for our arborists here at Bartlett Tree Experts. Hey, you're welcome, Victor. Call anytime. Great to see you. You too. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sips-on of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by... Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serrated. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And, well, and I, yeah. Okay, so now we're talking birds. And if you saw that Bartlett spot, yeah. it had the cedar waxing in it. Is that what that was? I had no idea. Mm -hmm. No clue. Uh, uh, Bob, do you uh, confirm that? Uh, I, I wasn't watching probably as closely <laughs> as I should have been. Okay, uh, but that's normally okay. we'd be on the lookout for cedar waxwings and... Um, Red cedars are pretty cool. I hope they don't that people don't take them out anymore because um, they're they're just awesome trees and they're they're actually useful for for some for some birds and and well that's the point they were making. I, I I mean yeah. I'm glad that uh, our our sponsor uh, Bartlett Tree Experts uh, did that. Uh, that was like in stereo <laughs> ex explanation of. Um, of the apple cedar rust because uh that that it's really hard to explain to people how that works and they did an excellent job yeah. of that and, and the it's idea a really that weird looking fungus when it's growing and yeah it is it is <laughs> and um the idea that we would just remove all the eastern red cedars uh be in in within miles of an apple orchard that's sound that's very human Okay, that is that is us as a species. Let's get rid of. Oh, we don't like that. That's causing a problem with our apples. Well, apples are more important than cedars, obviously. Right. Yeah. So we're going to imagine 
Yeah. What all the effects of that would be. We, <laughs> like, we mean, will destroy. So I know. We're, you know, <laughs> we're just so stupid sometimes. I just, I just cannot get over the stupidity of humans at some point. Um, just, but at least we don't do that anymore. So now we can control it. And, you know, and, and the point they make, there are treatments for that. And, uh, as you know, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of chemicals. Chemicals, but at some point, if you can control the apple seed or rust, um, maybe that's a good thing, and then you're not destroying all the cedars. So um, you know, call an arborist if you've got an issue, or um, learn from that and go study up on it and learn how to protect your plants. Uh, and that guy in the middle is Bob Dolgan from This Week in Birding. He's also a filmmaker. And the creator of Turnstone, what a, what is it? Turnstone something something. Um, strategies. <laughs> strategies. Strategies. Um, couldn't remember. I know uh, at any rate. Uh, and also, oh, is it there? <laughs> yeah. I, I never open those. Uh, <laughs> no, it is. It's actually open on my uh, computer. There it is. Uh, and also the, uh, the guy who uh, created the Monty and Rose films, uh, that uh, one of which is going to be on WTTW um, uh, public television in Chicago this afternoon at 4 p.m. Central. Uh, are you excited about that? I am, yeah. And I, I only realized uh, this weekend that it's also Mother's Day, so we get to celebrate Rose, which Rose is such a ferocious mom protecting her chicks out at Montrose Beach, and I'm like, great this is mother's day it's perfect it's a perfect mother's day film so but she's not there where is However, rose? she's not there so we'll still celebrate rose and she is not back yet um all right, all right let's let's for I folks think, who are not familiar with this let's set the scene because yeah, who's yeah. monty and rose <laughs> or who well, are monty, monty and rose are piping plovers and if you don't know what a piping plover is they're a type of shorebird species that's a little bit bigger than a sparrow and smaller than a robin. And uh, they're very rare. They only um, are in a handful of places around the Great Lakes. They're federally endangered. We have about uh, 74 pairs remaining on the lakes. And um, Monty and Rose chose to nest in Chicago three years ago and the past three years now. And um, I think surprised everybody by becoming the first piping clovers to nest in the city since uh, 1948. So um, wow. you know, Monty and Rose, um, are, are just amazing birds. And a lot of people, they brought a whole community together mm-hmm. of birders and others to, um, to protect them and learn about birds. Just a lot of people have gotten into birding because of Monty and Rose. So, and I would say even, even learning are, about protecting shoreline. Go ahead. I was going to say, and, and, and learning about protecting birds and learning about protecting shoreline and, and habitat as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, you know, birds are just phenomenal ambassadors uh, for the natural world because like Monty and Rose, their story touches on climate change, touches on water quality, invasive species, uh, coastal erosion, you name it. And um, it's, they're just, they're just fabulous. And uh, they wouldn't be there without the habitat restoration that's taken place at Montrose yeah. Beach Dunes over the past uh, 20 years or so. Well, and right. I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's something um, I was going to say is that you, you mentioned how they decided to nest here. I, it's possible. We don't know for sure. It's possible they wouldn't have done that without the restoration efforts 
at Montrose Beach. And so uh, hats off to all the people who have worked so hard over the last 20 years um, to restore that area and continue to work hard. I, I was reading just the other day that a bunch of uh, willows were taken out, which is going to disturb some people. They're going to say, oh, what are you doing? You get, you can't take out those trees. Well, they're, they're barely trees. I mean, they're, they're small. They're more like shrubs. Um, but they're also places where raptors and predators can prey on uh, piping plovers <laughs> like Madi and Rose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more cover that's out there, the worse it is for uh, for for birds, shorebirds like Monty and Rose, and it just makes for more perches where uh, raptor species can can kind of hang out, and um, that limits their their view of the beach. The plovers can, can't see the whole beach because there's a lot of foliage there. So, and I don't think these are particularly um, you know endangered or threatened uh, plant species, the willows that were mm-hmm. taken out. So. Um, yes, and I think in a normal kind of dune successional habitat, I'm not sure you'd have willows right there like that anyway. I think it's just something that's kind of popped up because Montrose, Montrose, yeah. it's an urban beach. Things happen there that aren't, you know, the same as what would probably happen uh, out, out in the wild. But um, yeah, so, um, but they took out those willows and that actually opens up the space for Monty and Rose. And you're talk, when you're talking about how endangered they are uh, and representative of their species, it's like, great. Well, let's try to protect them. So that, that's good to make sure that they live long enough to keep uh, repopulating plovers. Well, and that brings us to the idea that, well, they they, they nested there, what, for three years? Um, yeah. And, and it produced offspring. Um, their grandparents, uh, we've watched some they of their offsprings. Yeah, yeah we've, we've watched their offspring uh, pop mm-hmm. up uh, on Lake Erie. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a, a really amazing story, um, all told. But this year, Monty returned in April, uh, but uh, Rose has yet to show up. So do we have any clue as to where Rose might be? Well, uh, Monty and Rose uh, go their separate ways each winter. So they're only in uh, the sort of Midwest Chicago area for uh for the summertime for breeding hey season. hey so, i know that i know that kind of relationship believe me it's it's yeah. good get, get get away from your partner every once in a while uh yeah yeah probably a healthy thing for uh for human beings as well as birds uh to to separate an occasion and so uh monty goes down to texas uh at bolivar flats which is near galveston and uh and rose goes to anclo key which is uh near Tarpon Springs, Florida, and they, um, they have both been photographed this, this winter and other w- winters in, in those places. So um, Monty, we were getting photos of. In fact, we knew that he had left Texas in early April and uh, knew he was, he was on his way likely back to Chicago, and that proved uh, to be the case. Uh, April 19th, he returned. And then, then Rose, though, a little harder to photograph her because she's out on an offshore key that requires a uh, catamaran or kayak ride and um, not too many people get out there to take pictures um, of the birds from what I've been told. And so, uh, so she hasn't been photographed since February. And, and so it's a little worrisome. She hasn't returned back to Montrose because the birds have come back uh, the past uh, two years, very uh, in quick succession. In fact, in 2020, it was on the same day, May 1st. So um, it's a little worrisome. She hasn't been back, but there have been uh, other years, where Rose did come back later, like 2019, and uh, reports from other locations that have piping plover populations are that 
Um, not all their plovers are back from Florida yet either. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's been it may a nice be a spring weather-wise. Yeah, I mean, it's been a cold spring, uh, kind of across the northern tier of the U.S., and there haven't been a lot of warm fronts that have moved quite in the right direction. At least that's what I'm hoping, because the birds utilize the the sort of warm fronts, the jet stream yeah. to to take place. Well, I blame Ron DeSantis. All right, whatever happens, okay. <laughs> So, so is Monty still hanging out at, at Montrose Beach? Yeah, so Monty has been at Montrose Beach. Uh, he's still hanging out. Uh, he's been over in the protected dune area. He's been on the pier. Um, so he, by all accounts, is doing well. And um, yeah, we had one little um, kind of funny thing that happened where another plover showed up and Monty started courting her. Um, these are the things that happen in the world of, of birds and piping clovers. It's not always neat and tidy. Um, and, and so but she did not, um, she, she took off. She did not like, uh, you know, accept his advances not interested. and not interested. So, um, but, uh, that, you know, that just shows what, what, ha- how this, you know, this, this helps, uh, teach people about how you know mm-hmm. how the avian world works it's very very different from yeah. uh, even within yeah. uh you know birds just to know how plovers uh what their behavior is it's different for plovers versus the robins that are nesting in my backyard and there was a plover that showed up at rainbow beach now did that move on yeah. to i thought i saw michigan beach at this point yes yeah yeah that one moved on it was uh, Rainbow Beach is another great beach, uh, has great shorebird potential, and uh, that bird moved on uh, to Michigan up towards Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore, uh, where there's just a huge population of, relatively huge, of piping plovers. Yeah, it's a little more isolated than it is uh, down here in Chicago. Yes. <laughs> um, and that uh, that rogue Monty, he is uh, a roue, he's yeah. a roue. So, um, we've got, uh, the big day coming up next Saturday. Some people, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Cornell ornithological program calls it big day. Some people call it world mm-hmm. migratory bird day. There's international migratory bird day, but it's all on the 14th. Um, uh, but you were doing a count. Yeah. Oh, and a lot of people do counts on yeah. uh, bird and there day. There were some bird counts yesterday. But well. yeah, but you yeah. were doing one yesterday, Bob. What'd you see? Yeah. All right. Well, I've got to say, I was not in the most prolific birding area, but <laughs> you told you know, me about I, this. I did the place where I was assigned, which is a cemetery in Niles called Saint Adelbert's. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The idea behind I'm a walk the, the bird count. Yes. Yeah. Across from yeah, White Eagle. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, wow, I <laughs> love it. Uh, and so, um, yes, so I, but the idea behind a bird count is you try to kind of census as many locations as you can on a given day. And so uh, that was where I went. And um, it's uh, it's a big cemetery. It took me about an hour to drive around the whole thing. Um, and it, they're only scattered trees. There isn't a mu- much in the way of habitat. But it is a green space, and so it provides something. And so, like, robins were probably the most common species. I had 37 robins, um, which was down from last year, and I had about 125. Wow. <laughs> and um, uh, grackles were numerous, common grackles, which is a type of blackbird. Um, 
had uh, a lot of chipping sparrows, which is a migratory uh, sparrow that's up in this area now, which uh, was fun. And just a couple of warbler species, yellow rump warbler and palm warbler. But um, but it was, uh, it was um, you know, it's interesting to just see a place like that. I would say the grackles there are pretty prolific. I think they must nest there because there are about 10 to 12 of them and they're semi-colonial. So they were in like a cluster of trees, uh, pine uh I'm not sure what type of pine that they were in, but it was an evergreen or conifer. So, um, but yeah, it's a, there's some birds. I wouldn't say it was the most exciting uh, birding I've ever done, um, but that's part of what you do. And cemeteries can be surprisingly um, good places to go. Um, and, you know, they, they can harbor a lot of uh, birds at times and even rare ecosystems. So how does a bird count work? I mean, you are, now I've I've done bird counts down at the lake, but for listeners who might not okay. be aware, how how do you count yeah, birds um, on a bird count? Well, I, I I think of it as just a more serious kind of focused um, birding efforts. So like many a birder will keep a list while out on uh, a birding uh, outing, and um, I think it's just the difference would be just that you're literally keeping track of individual numbers and species. I would say when I'm actually on account, I'm taking more care to note every species and every individual. And, um, you know, you can use an app or you can use a, a notebook and and just keep track with tally marks of every individual and every species. Um, so uh, and then in a you given use time, a data. time frame. Yeah, the time frame, uh, the number of miles walked or driven, uh, what were the weather conditions, and um, and then you you provide that uh, that data to the count coordinator, and this happens in usually spring and around Christmas time for the Christmas bird count, and then that that data is submitted to a larger data set that gives people a real good sense of uh, what hap- you know what's happening as far as bird trends in you know that particular year, and then they can roll it up into multiple years, and you really start to learn some things. So. Um, but yeah, it's just probably being more focused than say my everyday kind of just, uh, stroll around, uh, you know, the nearby forest preserve. It, it just being a little more systematic probably than usual. Well, let's look at some birds that these are not from yesterday, uh, but these are some birds. (laughs) I know. And I'm kind of interested why you saw so few robins compared to last year. That just seems a little odd, doesn't it? Yeah, it did to me too. I, I, um, because robins have been just so numerous in the like sort of since March, uh, for the place, at least the places I've been going to. Um, so all I could think is that, um, they've for whatever reason have started to nest and have gotten to wherever they need to go, which is contrary to what my, uh, suspicion would be given how cold it's been. Um, mm-hmm. so all I can think is that they, for whatever reason, there wasn't a wave of robins moving through yesterday, and there was a year ago around the same time. Um, maybe last year was slightly earlier in May, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah, it's, it was it was sort of strange. Um, yeah, but but other birds were more common this year versus last year, like the chipping sparrows. Last year, I don't think I had any warblers. Um, so it, it really it just also shows like how how variable uh, birding can be in yeah. bird, bird behavior. I, yeah. I did see a couple, I mean, anecdotal, but I saw a couple of uh, Facebook posts from other people who were on the uh, Illinois Ornithological Count yesterday, 
saying there okay. were fewer birds. Well, they were counting too. They were surprised. Yeah, well, that's yeah. – and again, it might have to do with the weather. Um, it's it's hard to say right now. Uh, it might have to do with we're losing species hand over fist, but other than that – Let's hope it's not the case. Yeah, let's hope that's not the case. Well, let's uh, – so what have we got here? Okay. Uh, here's an eastern bluebird um, in – uh, it's either a, a young male or a female, um, but you can see here the uh, the sort of uh, reddish uh, tone, orange to red tone of the, um, the flanks and the upper chest and the bright blue wings. Um, yeah. If it was an a, a adult male, you'd see just this electric blue all, all on all of the uh, all of the back and and the entirety of of the head. And by the way, you, you took all these photos, right? Yeah, I did take, uh, I want to make sure, I think I did take all these photos. (laughs) I hope so. I don't want to make sure I remember what I gave you. (laughs) Um, If I didn't, I'll give credit to anybody else. Okay. So, uh, um, so this is an Osprey. Um, I took this picture in Yellowstone National Park last, uh, last August. And um, they're, they're, they've returned now to the Chicago area. Um, Sometimes mm-hmm. called the fish hawk because they uh, they prey on fish. Uh, they're, they're amazing uh, uh, fishers and uh, anglers, uh, and they plunge into the water after their prey. And uh, it's often confused with the bald eagle, um, but this is a much smaller bird um, with have crooked wings. Spotted, so. Have they been spotted nesting at Skokie Lagoons yet this year? Uh, I don't know about Skokie Lagoons. I know. They hadn't been back yet over at Paul Douglas Forest Preserve, I heard. Um, or, or was it? No, sorry. It was Moraine Hills State Park. But those are all mm-hmm. places where you can look for them. Uh, Powderhorn Lake on the far southeast side is a great place to look. Uh, they have an osprey platform. So they have uh, taken to the platforms that have been installed in recent years, um, which has been great because I think just they, they have a kind of special niche that isn't like, you know, the where the bald eagles are. Um, and, and so it's important to take care of the ospreys as well. Uh, so this, again, yeah, these photos were not taken this weekend. Uh, this is a, a common raven, <laughs> which is not going to be a bird you're going to see in the Chicago area. We have uh, basically no records in Chicago um, since something like the turn of the 20th century. Um, so, but this is a large uh Corvid species, uh, bigger than a crow, often confused with crows. Crows are often confused for ravens. And uh, this was taken in Wyoming also last uh, last summer. And um, they're just super fun to watch. They were kind of, we were uh, in a um, viewing area for, actually it was Old Faithful Geyser. And they were just sort of entertaining the, the crowd here, picking up various things and um they're, they're, you know, corvids are uh, among our most intelligent birds. Uh, so I feel like it's fitting that they're, this one's doing, I don't know what it's doing with that stick, but, um, <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> uh, but they have been, they're, they're one of the, the species they can really, they can recognize uh, individual human beings. There've been some experiments mm-hmm. done um, well, where, uh, you know, um, so, they have, so- they're just, they have a form of intelligence, which is pretty incredible. So if you see a blackbird in the Chicago area, it ain't going to be a raven. It's no, be- no. I've had to like, you know, Herman really um, push, push back on that. Like some people saying like, I know I saw a raven in Chicago. 
like, no, you didn't see her. And, and I don't want to completely, um, you know, decry someone's excitement, but it really is unlikely that um, that anyone would see a raven in Chicago. They did have a couple over by Indiana Dunes uh, not too long ago, a year ago. Um, all right, uh, great horned owl owlets. Uh, this is um, from uh, the forest preserves along the north branch of the Chicago River, and um, and so uh, this nest had um, had two uh, two owlets, and they appe- appeared to make it to fledging. When I took this picture, they were kind of venturing uh, farther and farther out from the nest, and um, they were a little bit late uh, in um, hatching. That they, they were they hatched around. I want to say it was late. It was hard to know exactly because they're about fifty feet up in a tree, but uh, it was late March, early April. Which what what late year? For, uh, at last year. Okay. And, 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 and so, uh, a, a little bit late, um, you know, owl nesting season is very active basically in the winter. Um, so, um, so I was, I don't know what happened, why that was. Um, and I'm not really sure if, if that affects like the likelihood that of their survival, um, looking ahead. Um, but I've gone back to the same site. I've not seen the owls, um, but I know I've heard just and seen on social media a couple of owl, other owl nests sort of along the same uh, corridor along the north branch, a little bit farther north than where this was. And um, and I wonder if, if uh, you know, if those are the same owls or maybe not. Maybe they're just different owls. But um, these birds are were uh, fairly, their parents were fairly common in my my neighborhood, which is just sort of a, um, you know, a suburban-like neighborhood. Um, you'd hear them calling at night and stuff. They're very, very entertaining and fun to kind of follow their story mm-hmm. last year. Boy, if I ever saw anything like that, I would freak out. I'd go, ah, 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 <laughs> an owl, an owl. I think I've seen, yeah, I've seen exactly yeah. one owl in the wild in my entire life, and it was in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, okay. Well, we've got to get you out and yeah See, yeah uh, yeah you got to get out and add to your owl list uh yeah no they're definitely around and and mm-hmm. definitely several species uh we're kind of in generally sort of getting out of the season when it's easier to see them as trees leaf out that's an issue this this uh photograph is, <laughs> is very uh representative of that um because i was having a harder and harder time just even finding them and seeing them and i found this little hole in the uh foliage to take this picture um so, but yeah, um, in the wintertime, there are, you know, a handful of owl species that are fairly um, easy to find in the right place. All right. Let's, uh, whoop, let's hit the right button here. Here we go. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Th- I did not take this picture. I have to credit oh, okay. uh, my friend, uh, my friend, Fred Newport, uh, who took this picture, but he said I could use this picture uh, for anything I ever wanted. So uh, <laughs> I um, what type of warbler is- are we looking at here? Yeah, it's it's a prothonotary warbler, and mm-hmm. um, prothonotary uh, warbler um, is just uh, a stunning bird. It's it, they're called the golden swamp candles of sort of the bottomland forests of uh, the, the South and the Midwest, and um, and so the, we're at about the northern extent of their range. Some do nest in Wisconsin, um, but here you're looking at places like Skokie Lagoons or maybe kind of uh, southwest toward the Palos region. Um, and uh, although in migration, I just had one in my nearest forest preserve uh, about um, a week ago. They're, they're 
somewhat common if you're along like the north branch of the river or other waterways. Um, so uh, they're they're just uh, they're stunning birds. They do nest. They're willing to nest in um, nest boxes, and um, also tree cavities being their sort of historical uh, home. So um, they're just stunning birds, and they 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 they, um, they like to be around water. They used to be called the swamp warbler, the golden swamp warbler, um, mm-hmm. and and so um, they have a beautiful, um, just really clear resonant song um that that they sing and uh they're fairly engaging like with people i I really don't know why that that is but they they almost seem like um less afraid of people than um than other species in my experience oh my gosh who played that um (laughs) and uh oh and one other fun fact um Pro, like what is prothonotary? Like what does that word mean? I, I, I'm not a word I've ever heard in any other context, but with this particular bird and what a prothonotary is or was uh, was a monk who wore uh, these yellow or golden robes, kind of in the Byzantine Empire, and uh, often uh, you, the word notary is in there. Monk who was also a clerk of some type, putting like data in the Byzantine Empire. Um, so anyway, so that's where the prothonotary comes from protho notary would be like maybe another way to say and uh, our friend marta says she sees them along and hear them uh along the fox river oh there you go yeah i mean yeah yeah i i had one along um the illinois river last year um i was down in the springfield area um all right knock uh, it off peggy (laughs) uh and yeah so they're down in the springfield area along a creek um near the sangamon river so yeah, they're they're um, they can be somewhat common, and it's just always a treat. They just kind of they literally brighten up, you know, the woods with their presence. And the last photo here is this yours? Yeah, this is mine. Um, all right, so yeah, this one's not going to win any like um, photography contests or you know, <laughs> much beautiful bird awards. Um, but it's a clay-colored sparrow, um, probably one of the most drab birds, other than like sort of our everyday house sparrows uh, or song sparrows, but I like to think of it in the positive in that they're just a unique uh, sparrow. They, um, they're they not super common around here. They barely nest in Illinois. Um, yeah, they have a buzzy <laughs> insect-like song that could easily be written off as just like some type of locust or grasshopper or something, but no, it, it is a sparrow. And they also don't behave like sparrows. They go up in the trees more and kind of flit around and uh, they look like warblers kind of um, hunting for insects. So, uh, so that, that, that clay colored sparrow is kind of, kind of fun. Um, What's the app? Oh, so go ahead. They look a little different from uh, chipping sparrows and others. You start to notice them. I was going to play the chipping sparrow too, because that's a sound that you hear, but might not know what it is. Yeah. Cause it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, they, and they're small birds, and they blend in well, so it's uh-huh. pretty easy to overlook them. Um, but yeah, the yeah. chipping sparrow has an insect-like almost trill as well. Uh, what app are you using uh, there? This is just the Cornell Lab. Ah, okay, because you, 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 Bur- you introduced me to There's another Merlin. app. Yeah, yeah. Merlin. Yeah. Uh, what was the? But what? Wait, here's uh, the other app. Song that, sleuth. Right. Song sleuth. Song Sleuth is another one that... Uh, Bob, you've probably got some apps that you yeah, like as well. I'm, well, Merlin, um, I like, and their their sound ID function is pretty fun just to kind of 
open it up while you're in the woods and just see what you hear. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but another another website that's incredible is Zeno Canto uh, X E N O uh, hyphen Canto C A N T O, and it's just like a an online database that users have uploaded all these bird songs from around the world, um, wow. pretty much every species under the sun, and uh, they might have an app too, but I, I don't I didn't find it quite as user friendly, but. Um, oh. Yeah, so there, uh, you know, we've come a long way uh, with birding technology, and um, you can with uh, the Sound ID app. I mean, that's just yeah. that's really powerful. Although it, not to kind of disrespect it at all, it, it kind of it messed up a little on on a couple of, <laughs> of 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 songs, and so I was like, no, that there's no way that that particular species is was here. <laughs> what I like okay. on Cornell yeah, Lab, and this isn't the app. The Cornell Lab is, is the website. If you go into listening to bird songs, it will pull up all the sparrows. Yeah. So you can easily just hit each one and go, oh, okay, that's the white-throated or whatever, if you're trying to figure out which yeah. one it is. Right. And I mislabeled yeah, them fun. earlier. It's actually the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and I've got Ornithology. a link to them and uh, uh, and to Global Big Day and to uh, World Migratory Bird Day. Those links are there. Uh, on the uh, the blog post, um, and uh, finally, before we let you go, we have to have you comment on that article that was in the Guardian uh, very recently. <laughs> this yes. is one of the funniest things ever. Um, <laughs> that uh, they, uh, the University of Essex, did a study and determined that birding is one of the most boring hobbies ever. Um, <laughs> And it and they ranked it actually below stamp collecting, and you apparently yeah. did stamp collecting, and you begged to differ. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, guys, stamp collecting. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was just nothing but stamps in a book. Like you weren't even outside. I mean, <laughs> and, whereas like I think about all the things that birding is, you know, all the ways I've experienced birds and the things I've done to go see birds, the lengths I've gone to, the trips I've taken. Like I mean, that that's much more exciting. The thrill of discovery of finding a bird you didn't expect to find in a certain place on a certain day um it just uh, there's just so much to it but i could go on but yeah no the, the stamp collecting and it was like you know people thought stamp collecting was more fun um all sorts of other things journalism and acting were two of the most fun things um, journal journalism and, I, I don't think journalism yeah. is fun and acting that's like <laughs> now a- acting is is actually really hard work okay i don't know if you you realize yeah. that but if you want to be a good actor you're going to have to work Ooh. very very hard knowing you know having been sort of a fair to middling actor in my day um oh. but oh yeah i ran a theater company for for 10 years in chicago and oh. thought oh. you know so you know, I've done I've done that. I've done the acting, the writing, oh, the directing. Okay. Uh, did the whole showbiz thing. Jimmy Stewart on the show every so. That's often. right, and I and I do oh, stuff. Yeah. Like okay. Yeah. Well. Um, okay. Maybe you can be in a documentary if I ever need a like a scripted um, role. Um, but, yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know I, what? I actually was looking for a pro proto notary, somebody to put on a golden robe and be a <laughs> proto notary. I would do that. I would do that for you. Mike you know, has worn a bee suit. I've worn time. bee a okay. bee suit. I've I've worn a uh, 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 who's the planter's peanut guy. I've worn that suit uh, in the past. Uh, so oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, a little bit of everything. Actually, um, yeah, we actually have a question for Bob too. Oh, okay. From Deb. All right. She says, when doing a bird count, how do you know you're not counting the same bird more than once? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's <laughs> meaning we don't know. We don't completely know, but I like to think that there, you know, you can sort of, I try to get a feel for like, am I in a different sort of place, like a different part, like, like at the cemetery, they're like sort of, you know, maybe four big sections and like, am I in a completely different section? And if it's a like some of the warblers, they're not going to be flying like all the way across like several hundred acres or whatever, like at a moment's notice. So I'm pretty sure I encounter like individual separate warblers. Same with like sparrows. Uh, it's an inexact science, but like the blue jays, there were a lot of blue jays flying around yesterday, and I ended up counting seven. And I I do wonder if that was maybe could it have been four, um, but it just seemed like there were so many and. Um, and it was like, I saw one by Milwaukee Avenue. I saw one uh, over on the other side of the cemetery. I, you know, it seemed like there were there were a lot of blue jays. So it is hard to know. Um, but I'll, generally, that's also why we have separate territories. So it's like, I'm counting over at St. Adelbert. Tom's counting over at Bunker Hill Forest Preserve. Someone else is counting at, you know, Edgebrook Woods. So it. And and the birds are messing. Well, no, I'm thinking the birds are messing with you, and they're all saying, "Okay, we got the guy at the cemetery. Now let's fly over to the other (laughs) site," and they'll think it's a different bird, and and they and that's how they do that. They'll put on glasses or a hat and a and a mustache, you know, and 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 a weird and a funny mustache. Yeah, they try to like sneak sneak up on you and and sneak behind you. But no, we I did have on the Christmas bird count two years ago. Uh, I think it was like 40 tundra swans flew over uh, a big swath of like the west and southwest suburbs and like five different groups of birders counted 40 tundra swans. So that that was pretty clear that that was the same, you know, flock of birds. Flock. Over. So you just counted as 40. And you then there were there were three three French hens, two turtle doves <laughs> and. Just counting here. I'm printing another Christmas in a Bradford pear tree. Exactly. But I'm in a Bradford pear tree. Absolutely. Just the scariest thing ever on the planet. All right. Um, so, uh, if you want to read about, uh, Bob, Bob's response to the, uh, the Essex study about boring hobbies, go to, uh, go to this week in birding. In fact, you can subscribe to this week in birding. Um, and, uh, get your, get his reports. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to remember the last, Chicago. Uh, um, com. I put the, the link up. Yeah. Well, and if you go to the blog post, uh, that's there too, as well. So what did we miss, Bob? I think, uh, we just tell people if you want to celebrate, uh, the, uh, world, uh, migratory bird day. It's next, it's 14th. Although some of the counts have already been done in Chicago, you guys need to get your act together, get all on the same page. Wouldn't that be a good thing? But, uh, what do I know about a big one up at the Hackam attack preserve on the 14th? Okay. Uh, there's a, there's a list on, on the show blog of yeah. some of the ones. Oh, yes. Yeah, some, yeah, some. I mean, you know, counting birds is a great thing to do and it, uh, like anybody can do it and it, it can happen at any time. It doesn't have to be a formal effort. But it does add to the overall, you know, it gives people, gives scientists more information about what's happening with birds, which is, which so it has a, it has a real value. It's, it's, it's fun and it's meaningful, which I, I think is great. So. Yeah. And it's boring. Just absolutely. And, yeah, just, and, and, yeah. And everything I just said probably be really boring to 
Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Were we talking about birding here? Oh, just so sorry yeah. about that. All right. And now more bird calls. All right. Bob Dolgan, thank you so much uh, for, for being on the thank show. You. And uh, happy birding. You and I will be. Th- and, and keep an eye out for Rose. Let us know when she yeah. shows up. I'll let you know. All right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. More to come when we return. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. I was pretty well considered an outlier and nuts. And today, the nursery with the kids and everybody involved is still considered groundbreaking in the sense that we do it just different. Over in a possibility place in 1978, by 1982, we were strictly into natives and have been ever since. Possibility place nursery grows more trees, shrubs, and perennials than I can count. Several hundred species from large shade trees to very small perennial plants. There is a native plant for every place in your yard. From trees to shrubs to flowers and grasses, they flower just as pretty. They flower on time. They bring in butterflies. They make the yard more dynamic. And every time you do a planting is an opportunity to add a native or to integrate a native into your landscape and make it richer. Birds are on the wing this spring, headed to their summer breeding grounds. And along the way, they'll stop at wetlands, forests, fields, and cities. Why cities? Urban areas can offer important habitat for migratory birds. Hi, I'm Jesse Berry from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. On Saturday, May 14th, I'll be heading to New York City with the rest of the lab's team sapsucker for some urban birding and Big Day 2022. We'll have 24 hours to find as many species of birds as possible to raise funds for conservation. Tens of millions of birds are migrating up the Atlantic Flyway. Some travel as far away as the Andes, Central America, and the Caribbean. New York City is a critical stopover point for thrushes, vireos, flycatchers, warblers, and more. Birds use city parks and other green areas to rest and refuel for their long migration. Big Day is one of our largest fundraisers of the year and ensures that our conservation projects have the support they need to make a difference for birds. Help Team Sapsucker make every bird count. Go to birds.cornell.edu slash bigday to learn more about our urban birding adventure and how you can help. And there you so go. Speaking of birds, yeah, we didn't talk with Bob about what you've spotted in your yard. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, well, I did the other day when we were, you know, setting no, but up. on the air, because you're usually saying you got a couple of robins, <laughs> yeah. a bunch of sparrows, maybe a woodpecker. 10,000 10, sparrows um, is, is you, what you I got get. a fancy visitor right now. Um, I've got, what do you mean? A fancy visitor right now. Well, I've got, uh, what we've seen in the past, you know, we, we see, we see robins 
We see mm-hmm. cardinals, definitely. We see uh, the downy woodpeckers. I actually saw a hairy woodpecker uh, in the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, and lately, we've, we've seen rose-breasted grosbeaks, a mm-hmm. rose-breasted grosbeak. I don't know if there's more than one. Uh, a yellow rump. You've probably of- seen the, the female. You just haven't. It's much. It's brown. All right. Well, then probably it looked like a sparrow to me. Um, and the yellow-rumped warbler. And the coolest one, I think, is the ruby-crowned kinglet, which mm-hmm. we've seen in the yard. A little tiny bird just flits around like crazy. Um, and uh, we uh, we managed to ID that. And so we've had a, a few here in our... But you know what? He mentioned jays. We never see a jay. I've never seen no, a blue... No, and I see them a lot. I never see one in my yard. I've never seen one here. Um nor even, nor I, I, even, I not, nor even red-winged blackbirds, uh, and they're like. Well, I'll send you mine. They're, they're everywhere. They're crazy in Humboldt Park, which is just a a few blocks away, maybe a half a mile, mm-hmm. um, and none of that here. So yeah. now I know I've been playing bird calls, but the rose-breasted grosbeak people may have heard in in trees, and it sounds similar to a robin. Let's see if I can. It does sound, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a little more warbly than a robin. So, there you go. Eh. You're familiar with the robin, which is my phone ring. So, uh, I th- uh, right. Oh, is that your phone ring? Okay, because then and my friend Mac has has uh, frogs, I think, or is it crickets or something like that. <laughs> It's like, I don't know. What do I know? Uh, uh, speaking of, okay, uh, I have a show and tell here behind yeah, me. Yeah, and, and the show and tell behind it we have to talk about too. Oh, my goodness, yes. All right. Look at this. This is my Ooh. hibiscus sinensis. Um, and this is a story in itself. It's blooming because it has been not under my happy leaf grow lights, but adjacent to them mm-hmm. a little thing for happy leaf um they i put them on the side what i okay here's the deal with this plant all right this plant i've had maybe for 15 years um i don't even know which one it is um or where it some, came from some kind of hybrid i got it as a gift somebody gave it well i interviewed a hibiscus guy uh back when i was at gargantua radio and he sent me one of these all right and it was tiny um, and I need to prune it desperately, but what happened is, um, a couple of years ago, it just stopped blooming or like several years ago, three or four years ago, it just stopped blooming. I went, Oh, okay. I probably need to repot the poor thing. And I emptied out the pot that was there and it was, it was nasty. I mean, no wonder it wasn't blooming. I'm, I, I was surprised it was alive because at the bottom, of course I had styrofoam popcorn which before I realized back in the day when I didn't before know knew better. before I knew better that you don't put pebbles and popcorn at the bottom of your pot. You just put soil. That's what they were saying 15 years ago. Um, yeah, they were, it was a big deal. It was like, Oh, that's, that's, it'll help your drainage. Well, this science now shows that it doesn't, it hinders the drainage. Um, so I had the popcorn in there and the soil was nasty. It was, it was tired and it had, and I hadn't, switched it out in years and i thought well well no wonder the thing's not uh blooming and so i replaced the soil 
did my homemade potting mix. Where I added a little compost. I had a soilless mix. And then I even put uh, biochar in there mm-hmm. and waited. And, and this was beginning of last year. Nothing. Um, and I thought, well, that's okay. It's got to it's got to rest. It's got to get its energy back. And, you know, it, it leafed out rather nicely and it was fine. And then, and then over the, uh, over the winter, I did a really dumb thing is I, 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 we were, uh, setting up an apartment for some friends who were staying over. Um, and, uh, we put a ZZ plant in there and I said, ah, let me grab my hibiscus and I'll put it in there too. So they, they have a plant and we told them, don't worry about it. Don't water it. They should have watered it because hibiscuses love water. And that was really dumb on my part. So by the time I got to it, all the leaves except two had dropped off. So it basically was gone and had gone into dormancy. And I got it back here and I brought it home and I watered it and I put it next to the happy leaf light and I put it on the side. So it wasn't getting direct light. It was getting indirect light. It was getting, and then I saw the leaves started to pop up, and I went, oh, that's good, and then I saw the buds start to come up, and then it, I mean, it's still got two or three buds on there. I had one bloom the other day. I have the one you just saw. Whoops, don't knock it over, and uh, <laughs> and, and a couple more, they're going to pop in the next few days, and I went, holy smoke. Um, you wouldn't expect it to bloom in May, you know, because if I put it out in the yard, it might bloom in July. Um, but it's inside but- under the light. But it's inside under the lights and very happy because it's under a happy leaf. Um, so um, there you go. And 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 now I will still put it outside, and I might I might even prune it back once the blooms are done. Um, I mean, you usually you prune these things in the spring, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just going to wait till things bloom. And and I, it needs to be a little more compact. It's a little rangy at the moment. Uh, but there's there's a story of my hibiscus. There you go. Now let's talk about the story behind it. Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I can uh, even pop up something because I... Through the st- magic. Through the magic, the magic of... of the uh, I mean, I can't remember to put uh, the right uh, title of the show and the explanation <laughs> up on our social media, but I can certainly put this up here. Okay. And... We want people to who live in Chicago to enter the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Just go to uh, chicagogardeningawards.org. And uh, we've started to get uh, uh, folks um, uh, uh, registering oh, their gardens. Oh, yeah, we've got entries. Um, you know, and it's especially after this week, once we get some warm weather, I think yeah. folks will be a little more interested in it. Um, the, and we're uh, back in person judging, as it says here. Uh, last two years we've done virtual. This year we'll be back in people's gardens. Yep. And you get those wonderful signs um, that are all weather and will last forever. Uh-oh. Go grab a sign. I know I could run and get one, too. No, don't Don't knock over the lamp. Don't knock over Basil the dog. Uh oh, Peggy's gone. What are you doing? <laughs> I was under my desk getting it. Holy smoke! All right, there, there you, you go. go. You get those wonderful signs, and they are all weather, and they last forever. Uh, and what? I can't see it. We're still looking at the. Um... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at it in preview. Uh, so, uh, because I, I don't know how to do anything right today. 
So there you go. Those are those are the signs that are made by the uh, Forest Preserve District of Cook County, um, and they're a great partner uh, for uh, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Award. So uh, go to our webpage, uh, go to our Facebook page. Um, you know, I I haven't posted on our Twitter page, and I need to do that. So oh, I will yeah. I will I will do that and sure, take care. With anyone you know in Chicago, we are looking for. It is a volunteer run organization, five hundred one c three. We are looking for people who want to be judges. You don't have to live in the city of Chicago to be a judge. Um, and looking for people to help on committees. So if you want to want to join in, or if you've got a group, um, you can go to the website. There's a, a whole media kit up there, too. If you want to forward to people you know, put it on your social media. We've got a press release up there. We've got graphics. We've got everything, thanks to Kathleen. Mm-hmm. and Mike and everybody on the committee who's helping. Yeah. Some great people on the committee who have been helping us do that. So uh, uh, I'm going to say the green dispatch is up um, on the website. <laughs> I put all that up, did all that work. And of course we're not going to get to it. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff to read up there, including a lot on birds and something hopefully um, we can touch on in the coming weeks of heat waves in India and Pakistan. Yeah, speaking of uh, weather stuff, hey, why not? Let's pop this up uh, that I got from the National Weather Service. Now, they're not, they're not, no, no, Tuesday, they're saying, Tuesday and Wednesday, look at 83 to 89, Wednesday, 82 to 91. Yikes. That's just. Well, look at the overnight temperatures. Y- yeah. Uh, they're they're higher, higher than our daytime temperatures have been uh, for the last yeah. few weeks. I mean, I can, like, do away with fleece and boots for a few days? I think so. And then we'll probably go back into the 30s and get snow. Who knows uh, what's going to happen. But uh, today uh, is spring. Yesterday was spring. Today is spring. And then we go, well, Monday, it also, depending on where you are. Um, and then yeah, they all. Live by the lake, it stays in spring. But the, the big thing is it'll be humid, so it's going to feel like spring and summer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and some of the uh, stories, as you said, there's uh, uh, a ridiculous heat wave going on in India, in Pakistan. Um, it just sounds horrible. But, you know, you got to consider they're, they're not that far above the equator. They, the, the Tropic of Cancer splits India in half. Mm-hmm. So even though they're in the northern hemisphere, they're, a, a tro- they're considered a tropical country. Uh, so there's just if you if you read the one article that you posted, there's some um, you know it's talking about climate change and the heat waves, but also talking about how cleaning up smog in the atmosphere may even make them worse. It's yeah, which, dichotomy. which is weird, isn't it? The idea that um, the you could make it worse by making the air better. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but so take a look at that. Um, another, uh, article, I mean, it's not happy stuff that most of it's not happy stuff. Uh, populations declining for 48% of the world's bird species. That's a new study out on uh, uh, birdwatchingdaily.com. Yeah. Um, and, uh, another, an article, uh, by our friend, Carrie Gillum, who we need to have back on mm-hmm. the show about, uh, disasters, those we see and those we don't. And what she talks about is, uh, you know, tornadoes, you see that, but the chemicals that are in our uh, environment, you don't the, see. The, the, P, the P, 
PFAS, PFAS that we were talking about in the first hour. Uh, on on uh, artificial turf and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and, and a big uh, lawsuit with DuPont and, uh, and others. And, and, and among the, uh, you know, sublime to the ridiculous, Chicagoans respond to Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot's canned water gimmick is what the Eater Chicago calls it, the gimmick. You know, that and... and water and sell it, yes. And, of course, they're going to put a casino on the Chicago River and light it up like crazy and then watch the birds go drop down. Um, We don't get it. We We just refuse to get it. Understand what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the total lunar lunar eclipse on May 15th, next Sunday. Something fun to look forward to. Uh, I got to get out of this place if I want to see it. There's very little I can see in the sky in my neighborhood. But well, This is actually, um, do I still have the article up? It was, the, so there's a Chicago Tribune article. It's not the one that, that you linked, but it's um, uh, May 15th, starting at 8.32 p.m. But uh, it does talk a little bit why the moon appears red, orange, red and orange. And it has to do with um, sunlight's only reaching the moon passing through the atmosphere. So I'm sure if Rick were here, he would expound he, on He that would topic. explain it, but he ain't. So let us hit the road. Oh, wait a and second. And as, as Andrew says, the heat is coming because Rick is gone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, let's thank all the people who are on the show today. Uh, use Shabaker Koppel and her son, Yoakum. Uh, uh, actually, Yoakam Shabaker, not uh, just so we know. It is uh, Mary Galay, also, uh, and they are all from uh, Lake Forest, uh, battling against, uh, trying to, to, to mitigate the idea of uh, uh, artificial turf up there. Ryan Anderson from Midwest Grows Green, Bob Dolgan from This Week in Birding. Uh, thanks to Kathleen for all her work. No thanks to me for screwing up the listing of it. Uh, thanks to Basil and Lagata. Until next time, go green or go home. Birdie, 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 birdie. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.